Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Greetings, fellow seekers of the unknown. It's Brian, and I'm here today to share something truly extraordinary with all of you. As you know, my journey to uncover the truth of all things strange has taken me on a wild ride filled with incredible experiences and encounters with the unseen. And today, I want to share that journey with all of you by introducing you to Hangar One Publishing. Hangar One Publishing is the premier destination for books on all things strange and mysterious. From Bigfoot to cryptids, UFOs and the paranormal, they cover it all. And let me tell you, the books in their catalog are simply amazing. One book that I'm particularly excited about is The Freeman Bigfoot Files by Michael Paul Freeman. This is no ordinary book, my friends. This is an immersive experience unlike any other. With Hangar One's proprietary immersive book technology, you can see and hear audio and video in the printed books. You'll get exclusive access to the highest resolution full-color premium print pages, over 100 full-color photos, and dozens of exclusive audio and video clips that have never been revealed until now. It's a one-of-a-kind experience that will take you deep into the world of Bigfoot. Another book that I simply can't recommend enough is The Bigfoot Influencers by Tim Halloran. This book features candid, compelling conversations with the biggest names in the Bigfoot community, and it will give you a behind-the-scenes look at what they really think about this mysterious creature. You'll hear from researchers, scientists, and investigators and get a glimpse into the inner workings of the Bigfoot world. And finally, for all of my fellow British Bigfoot enthusiasts, I want to mention Beast of Britain by Andy McGrath. This book is a must-read for anyone interested in the cryptids of the British Isles. McGrath has spent over 25 years researching and obsessing about these unknown creatures, and in this book, he shares his findings and current research. It's a journey into the darkness, where nobody ventures into the woods anymore, and where the many yet-to-be-discovered beasts of Britain lie. So, if you're ready to take your journey into the unknown to the next level, then you need to check out Hangar One Publishing. These books are more than just books. They're gateways into a world of mystery and discovery. And the best part? You can find their entire book catalog at HangarOnePublishing.com. So, what are you waiting for? Visit HangarOnePublishing.com today and let the journey begin. Now, what are you reporting? Uh, I got a strange going on out here. Something just killed my dog. Something killed your dog? My dog went flying through the air over the tree. I don't know how it did it. Okay. Damn it, I'm really confused. All I saw was my dog coming over the fence, and Nate was dead when she hit the ground. I didn't see any cars. All I saw was my dog coming over the fence. What are you reporting? Uh, we got someone or something crawling around out here. Did you see what it was? It was. It was standing up. I'm out here looking through the window now and I don't see anything. I don't want to go outside. Jesus Christ, you better... Sure. Uh, see ya. Hello? Get somebody out here. 
What's going on now, sir? That son of a bitch is about six foot nine, I don't know. Do you see him now, sir? Yes, I'm looking right at him. Uh-oh. Hey, everybody, this is Les Stroud. Yes, yes, I know, a.k.a. Survivor Man. And you're listening to Brian from Sasquatch Odyssey. Guys and welcome back to Sasquatch Odyssey. Thank you so much for being with us for the show. It is Friday. I hope you guys have had a great week. We have an amazing guest lined up, but as always, I want to start the show by inviting you. If you've had an encounter and you'd like to be on, shoot me an email. You can get me at brian at paranormalworldproductions.com. You can head over to the website, check it out, become a member there, and help support the show. As I said, we've got a great guest lined up. We've got Scott Tompkins here from the Bigfoot Mapping Project. And This is one of my favorite conversations, honestly, I've had in quite a while because not only is Scott here to talk about his personal encounters and a sighting of one of these creatures, but he's here to talk about the Bigfoot Mapping Project and all the amazing work that he's put into documenting these different types of encounters. The Bigfoot Mapping Project, you can find all the links to everything right here in the show notes, so I highly suggest you check it out. You can go over to BigfootMap.com and get everything there for free, but I highly suggest get it on your phone. The app is two bucks. It's a one-time charge. It's not reoccurring. You spend $2, you get to download the map right to your phone, and you can see all of these amazing encounters. It's a huge repository of these sightings from across the country. So spend the two bucks, get the app on your phone, support what Scott's doing. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. We talk about some of the photos and some of the cases that he shares towards the end of the interview. Make sure you head over to ParanormalWorldProductions.com. Check out the Sasquatch Odyssey blog at the top of the page, and you can see all of the photos that we talk about during the interview. If you haven't already done so, please take time to rate and review the show wherever you're listening to the podcast, and make sure you follow us on Instagram at Sasquatch Odyssey. Check us out on TikTok and follow us over there at Sasquatch Odyssey Podcast, and we'd love to have you in the Sasquatch Odyssey fans group on Facebook. But for now, Scott's on the line. He's ready to go. You guys sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. All right, folks, I want to welcome our guest to the show. It is Scott Tompkins from the Bigfoot Mapping Project. Welcome to the show, man. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited. I really enjoyed our, our green room chat. And uh, now that we're underway recording, this is um, I'm very happy to be here and get into all the information I've got to share. Plenty of stories and information about maps and tons. Who knows what rabbit trails will take? I'm excited for it. That's my favorite kind of show, man. I have to admit, I didn't know anything about the Bigfoot Mapping Project. I didn't know anything about you until I had Alexander Petikoff on probably about a month or so ago. And he mentioned you during the show, and he was gracious enough to connect the two of us. And I've been excited about this conversation. I was talking to Alex about it yesterday, and I've really been looking forward to this. So let's get right into it. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Tell everybody about you who may not be familiar with you. And then we'll move into some of your personal encounters and some of the mapping stuff. Sure. My name is Scott Tompkins. I grew up in Beacon, New York, about an hour north of New York City, in where you have the mountains in your backyard and the train to Grand Central 
uh, anytime you want. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. A little plug for Beacon. It's a great little city. Very proud to be from there and from New York. It's a little town on the Hudson River, and that will be important later when I share my first experience. Uh, it did happen on Mount Beacon. Whether it was Bigfoot or not, I'm not sure, but I'll let, I'll let everyone be the judge of that. So that's coming up, a little preview before I finish uh, speaking about my background. My background, I have a Bachelor's of Science in GIS, which is Geographic Information Systems from SUNY Cortland. The SUNY system is a great, great college system, great university system. And at the time that I was taking GIS as my major, it was, I think Cortland was the, the second school to offer GIS outside of Buffalo. So I was, it was a young program and uh, it got me started in my career, which I've been working as a GIS professional in geophysical exploration and energy for about 15 years. So I work mainly onshore U.S. looking for oil and gas and doing, it's called seismic exploration, big vibrosized trucks that weigh 35 tons and dynamite shaking the ground. That's a whole nother podcast interview. There's plenty of stories there too, but not Bigfoot ones. So I was working onshore U.S., traveling to all different parts and living on the projects as I was shooting them. And these projects covered about anywhere from 10 to 800 square miles, uh, very, very large areas. So I got to learn those areas like the back of my hand, being a mapper and a GIS person. I was flying in helicopters over them uh, as part of my job, inspecting seismic lines and picking up geophones and working with landowners, all different kinds of things that got me really out into the wilderness of North America in Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Texas. Uh, where else have I worked? All over the place, Oklahoma. And um, I got a good cross-section of what the different environments of North America look like. And after that, I did some data management globally for uh, another seismic company where I worked marine and onshore data. And currently, I, I'm working in the geophysical industry still uh, globally doing data management. So I'm a project lead in the data management department at a, uh, one of the popular seismic companies. I don't think they want me mentioning their name on a Bigfoot podcast. Uh, I don't know how they feel about that. So I'll just say that. But uh, that's a bit about my background. Um, so that brings me, uh, gives me a good foundation for the Bigfoot mapping project. And I guess I'll go straight into my first experience, which kind of tipped me over the edge on believing in Bigfoot. Uh, I always, I'll give you an idea. I was a teenager in the early 2000s, just graduated high school in 04. So Finding Bigfoot was a very popular show at that time, and it was something that I watched with my family kind of as an entertainment value. Oh, there's it could be Bigfoot, you know, Unsolved Mysteries was popular, and what's the name of the other show? Monster Quest that Doug Highcheck does uh, was very popular. So it was all those kind of History Channel sci-fi combined shows that we thought were fun. Oh, this would just squatchy, oh, guys, you know. We kind of made it, we were very lighthearted about it. And until, uh, let's see, my first experience, like I alluded to earlier, was on the backside of the reservoir on Mount Beacon. Uh, it's a 125 million gallon reservoir. It feeds some of the water to New York City, as a matter of fact. So my friend and I were hiking behind the reservoir. There's a fire tower on top of the mountain. We were going on our way to the fire tower. We never made it to the fire tower that day. Uh, we rounded the back corner of the reservoir, and there was a ravine 
that followed a creek down to the other side, backside of the mountain. And all of a sudden, this tree just started shaking. I mean, it, it was a decent sized tree. Uh, you measure trees at DBH, it's called diameter of breast height. And at, at that height, I would say it, it was probably 12 to 18 inches around. So it was a fairly large tree. And it, it, it really reached the canopy, at least in the lower part of the canopy. So this tree was shaking all the way up as far as you could see into the canopy. And accompanying that was just this guttural roar. And the hair stood up. We were teenagers, right? So the hair stood up on the back of our neck. We looked at each other and we just bolted down the mountain. That was my first primal fear experience of, wow, we got to get out of here, right? That's, that, was, that was the extent of the encounter, whether it was Bigfoot or somebody that was really strong shaking a tree. I do not know. Didn't stick around to find out. But from then on, it kind of just registered with me. It was something I didn't forget. And I kind of turned the corner on believing in Bigfoot because at that point, I hadn't seen anything that was unexplainable in the wilderness, especially like, oh, that's a bear or this or something you could explain away. But that that really, really stuck with me. So I carried that with me in throughout my exploration of the U.S., doing seismic exploration. And this is kind of a hybrid uh, explanation for getting into how the Bigfoot mapping project started. So from that point forward in 2001, I finished high school, went to college, graduated. And from there, I moved straight to West Virginia, uh, Charleston, West Virginia, on the Kanawha River. We were shooting a seismic project. And part of the job was getting permission from landowners to conduct the testing across their property, right? Because in the U.S., it's private. you have to get permission to do that. So we, we get to speak to everyone. And when you get to know everyone and you're embedded locally with, with these folks that live out there on the prospect in mountains or in remote rural areas, you, spend, you get to spend a lot of time with them and learn about their families and their history. And they like to show you the, their property. They're very proud of their property, as they should be. And they want to make sure that you treat it with respect, just like they do. So they, they tell you, they walk you around the property, show you things to watch out for, tell you stories. And, you know, um, you get to talk to them as you're, you're learning about their property. And then the more you get to know them and the more they're talking, they get deeper into this layer of, let me tell you the strange stuff. And at first, I just, in West Virginia, when I was younger, I, I thought, oh, that's weird. You know, people kind of have some weird stories. Got some stories about uh, a cinnamon-colored creature in West Virginia that snuck up on somebody when they were hunting, right? And then from West Virginia, I traveled to Oklahoma from there, and I was in the panhandle of Oklahoma and talking to people, and then more strange stories started to come out, right? And then from there, I went down to Northwest Louisiana, and the same thing. And, And I'm not asking for these stories. I'm not trying to pull them out of people. They just are part of the the anthropological experience, right? These people have something they want to share just like humans do. And they're telling you as they're, you know, walking around the property and they get to the spot where this thing happened, or they were told that this thing happened at that spot by somebody else in their family on this property. They tell you like, you wouldn't believe my grandfather saw this here and it, it would howl at them or different things. Stay tuned for more Sasquatch Odyssey. We'll be right back after these messages. And as I traveled across the U.S., I got more and more stories at specific locations 
on the prospects that I was working. And it kind of stuck with me. And that's when I connected the dots. I got into, uh, it was probably uh, 2015, 2016, when I had the idea just kind of settled in one of the wrinkles of my brain that oh, I should make an app and a map that tracks this. I don't think this is out there. And I just kind of festered there and marinated for a while until uh, fast forward to quarantine. And I had time and I've had more technical knowledge as a GIS developer now to build what, what I envisioned. So I built the Bigfoot Mapping Project, which is basically bridging the gap from my experience in the field, talking to people, hearing stories at specific locations from them. And those stories didn't go anywhere. They just stayed with those people and with me now. But my thought was if I could get them to submit that information through crowdsourcing and a survey and share their stories in a database that's structured and organized and I can analyze, then we can do something with that information. It's not just anecdotal anymore. We can analyze it, look at it, and start to pull information out that you might not see otherwise. Maps are great for that. So you can just map. Sometimes you can just look at a map and know what's going on in an area. I mean, I think the first use of a map was to solve, uh, used to, to find cholera in the UK. I think that was the first use of like a, a map. They mapped all the wells that were getting people sick and they figured out, oh, this is what's happening. It's in the water. So, I mean, just that, using that as an example, I'm doing, trying to do the same thing with Bigfoot sightings and, and tying data to specific locations, dates, all of the metadata you can capture and, and find that um, a common thread that will help us help, hopefully help us get to identify Bigfoot as a species. Now, chronologically, I'll keep going if you don't mind, uh, since I'm on a tear here. Um, chronologically, after I had that thought and after I started the project in 2021, I was hunting about six months, maybe eight months actually, after I started the Bigfoot mapping project. Uh, I live in Texas now, so I'm a New Yorker that's settled in Texas. I don't Still, I guess I'm a Texan now. I've been here 10 years almost on and off. So I was hunting out on a lease. Uh, Texas is 95% privately owned land. So you, if you want to hunt anywhere, you have to lease it from a landowner. It's very hard to find public land. And when you do, it's very crowded, right? So uh, I'm the only one on this lease. And it's part of an 11,000 acre cattle ranch. And the lease borders uh, a national wildlife refuge. So it's very well protected. And it's kind of a sanctuary. Now, this was bow season. It was October 17th, 2021. I wrote down the date. I'm referring to my notes here. I want to get it right. I was hiking out after not seeing any deer that evening, about 30 minutes after sunset, after shooting time in Texas. Uh, you're not going to shoot anything with a bow after. It's just you're not going to be able to see anything anyway. And it's just not safe. So I was walking out a little disappointed. And I was walking the barbed wire fence coming up from a river bottom. And on my left was the barbed wire fence. On my right was the pasture, right? So I hunt kind of a river bottom area. And it's bramble and briars, kind of a, it, it goes river bottom, thick forested area. There's some hardwoods. Then it kind of transitions into a grassy, just like buffalo grass type area. And then up to the pasture, there's a little bit of an elevation change. So I, I could see from when you're standing along the barbed wire fence, you could see down a little bit into the field. 
not all the way to the river bottom, but you can see far enough. And I was walking probably 40 yards, 50 yards from my truck. And off my left shoulder, I looked and I saw just something that was darker than this, this brown grass, like shadow. And there's a lot of hogs here in Texas. So I just assumed, all right. And I've, I've walked up on them before. I assumed it was a hog. So I just stopped walking and figured it's pretty big. I'm going to let it, let it go on its way. It looks like it's headed towards the river. I'll just kind of let it go. And it'll, it, that way, neither of us are bother, bothered. There's no reason to bother it. And so I just stood there. And as soon as I stopped, this blob, I, I mean, it just stood up. It stood up. And I, I was f- just flabbergasted. And all I could think to say was, whoa. Just like that. I just kind of whispered it to myself, like, whoa. And what am I seeing? You know, just kind of processing what was going on. And as soon as I said that, it squatted back down. So I didn't know what to say. And this is probably the stupidest thing I could say. I just stood there. I was like, I, I see you. I see you. It's like, you know, like I didn't know what to say. It stood back up. And at this point, I could see, I mean, if this was, I'm like 95% sure this was Bigfoot. I, I'm willing to say that because this area was so remote and this, this, creature was massive i mean it looked like it had just a football helmet on pads full pads and it was if it was if i could measure it i'd have to say at least six and a half seven feet tall because the shrub that was tree that was behind was navel level and i went later in the daytime and looked at this it was tall right it was it's chest height for me right so and i'm like five nine so there's a significant extrapolation there that i could do to figure it out and I mean, I could see its silhouette of its hands, it, its head. I'm, I'm doing the motion of it looked like a kind of a pointy head, no neck, and just a body that, uh, I mean, if, if I got any closer, I'd have been in trouble. I was definitely intimidated. I'll say that. Like, there was an element of, I could be in danger here if this is a person or something unexplainable, Bigfoot, if, if they have any malintent. I'm not making it to my truck. I'm not making it back to my truck. They were in between me and my truck. So as soon as I said, I see you, and I kind of registered that silhouette, it turned and booked it full speed through everything into a thicket of trees. And all you could, all you could hear is just crashing, breaking. Just There's no way a person... I later tried to find a clear path. It's all meandering. It's thick. It's viney. It's, it's full of thorns and pricker bushes. and briars and and anything you want that's going to stick you in texas cactus is in there too and there's no way no way even if you were clad in brush gear and you need a headlamp at the very least to not fall and hurt yourself going through there and i'm i was convinced after that that whatever i saw was not a person not a person and i've talked about it a few times so now i i just to this day i just can't i can't fully explain it that that is my i wouldn't call it a definitive sighting but is that's as probably as good a sighting as anybody else has had and i'm of course after the fact i i thought to myself i was like of course people are going to think the bigfoot mapping guy goes out and has a sighting six months after starting the project but that's just how it happened uh, i i wish i could you know tell you more i wish it was a little lighter so i could have seen more details but that is I just remember it like it was yesterday and it was already two years ago, almost one and a half years ago. So 
that's my sighting. That's that's only solidified everything I'm doing with the Bigfoot mapping project. Now I want to know. You know, I want to I want to know. I still hunt that same spot. And believe it or not, I can still fall asleep against a tree out there. I don't feel threatened anymore. So what that means, I don't know. But uh, I I hope that one day I wake up and in my line of sight, it's the same Bigfoot, and we get to exchange glances and maybe I get a good picture or something. I don't know. Well, I want to go back to your first experience that you had and the vocalization that you heard. That's something that's always fascinated me. And we talk about it all the time on the show because a lot of people have experiences with something audible, whether it be a tree knock, a wood knock, a tree snap, or some sort of vocalization, howl, screams, those kind of things. As close as you can, as you recall, and I know it's very difficult because I've tried to do this myself and I've interviewed so many people who try to convey what these things sounded like, but is there anything that you can give us an example of that may help people understand what you heard as far as the vocalization that you heard? That's it's hard to describe, but it was a it did not sound like the typical Bigfoot scream that you hear everyone do, the howl on the shows. It was not a long ah like you hear. It was more like a oh, like a oh, oh, like a guttural, almost like a gorilla ape warning sound that you see. Very, very diaphragmatic, if I could, if that's even a word, but you could hear the force behind it very much so. And the other thing that sort of interests me about that particular experience is the tree shaking that came before that, because that's very much ape like behavior. If they feel threatened, they're trying to establish territory, you know, these big males or alpha males or whatever will shake trees and vocalize. So did you get the sense? I mean, I know it's hard to say. It's obviously a subjective thing, but having the experience that you had just a couple of years ago and then looking back in retrospect in, on that experience, do you feel now that it may be more likely that you had an experience with a Bigfoot back then? Knowing what I know now and reading many reports and understanding behavior better about Sasquatch. Keep in mind that I'm 36 now and I was 22 years ago. So I was a kid. I didn't know. Um, I've had the benefit of maturing since then. Uh, well, almost maturing, I would say. I do think that it's a bit harder to explain away. Back then, I really did think, you know, it's got to have been somebody playing a prank. But then when you think about it, could it, it could the average person young person shake a tree in the way i mean it was significant it was back and forth swaying and shaking there's no i I couldn't do it so i I do think that it's more likely yes um i don't think it could have been many other things that i could pinpoint really so i not saying definitively but i'm the barometer is tipping towards bigfoot a little more than it used to especially after understanding and learning more about Bigfoot behavior from many different people and reading all the reports and hearing Dr. Meldrum speak and just being in the community now and, and learning from that knowledge base. I do think it could have been. Uh, I'm not going to say everything is, but it could. It, it, it's not outside the realm of possibility. I'll say that. I think that happens for a lot of people. You have experiences or somebody has an experience when they're a kid or 20 years ago, whatever the case may be. And then, like you said, as you learn and maybe have another experience, then you start, people start putting together, well, you know, those sounds that I was hearing may not have been what I thought it was, or that knock might've been something different. You know, it's definitely interesting for sure. 
And most people don't get an experience at all, frankly. I deal in anecdotal experiences, but in general, not too many people get to see one of these things. And most people never have an experience at all that they're aware of. There's people in the community that have been out researching these things for five decades, and they've never seen so much as a hair or a track or heard a tree knock or any of those things. So I think you're in really, really select company to be able to say that I had an experience where I saw what I believe to be a Bigfoot. So let's talk a little bit about the mapping project. I've talked about this on the show before. I've had people ask me behind the scenes, if you had an experience, because we've had things happen here on the property that I think may be Bigfoot related here in North Carolina. And people have asked me on and off the air, if you had an experience, if you saw one of these things, would you tell anybody? And I have to say, I would be very hesitant, to be honest with you. I would probably eventually, just because that's the kind of person I am, I would eventually share my story, whatever that story happens to be. But I get the reservation because it's tough to be that guy who either does a Bigfoot podcast or does the Bigfoot mapping project. And then all of a sudden, bam, you have an experience, right? So there's a lot of cynical people in the community. So I definitely applaud you for A, starting the project, doing what you've done, sticking with it, and being that guy who comes out and says, hey, this is what I saw. It is what it is. So I appreciate that. But let's talk a little bit about the project itself. You started the project. What was that process like for you? Where did you begin when you started to do this? And tell a little bit about what that process is and what we're talking about, whether it be the website or the app. Sure, sure. So um, some technical background, I won't get too technical, but actual construction and building the app was a lot of learning. Like I said earlier, I I had time during quarantine. Um, I usually spend a lot of time out in the wilderness, hunting, fishing, do wildlife photography. So I would say a good 60-70% of my free time is spent in the wilderness, right? So without that, because a lot of the, um, at least state parks and things were closed during early part of quarantine. So I was very bored. And I decided that I would attempt to learn how to build an app. And believe it or not, I started on YouTube. Um, I just Googled how to build an app and what just did some research, read different articles, started to understand what it took to, to code, minor coding. I'm not an expert by any means and build an app. And I started with the website first. Uh, it was easier for me because it was a, a, a shorter bridge from what I do professionally. Stay tuned for more Sasquatch Odyssey. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey everyone, it's Brian. I want to take a couple of seconds and talk to you about something that's really important to everybody. A good night's sleep. Recently, I found myself having a hard time falling and staying asleep. I was waking up every morning with shoulder and back pain and I felt like I'd been in a fight the entire night instead of getting a good night's sleep. I thought it was just stress and maybe the back issues from many years in law enforcement and carrying a heavy duty belt. But then I got to thinking about my mattress. It had been several years since we replaced it so I started taking a look around. And that's when I found Vitalis Sleep. We ordered the 12 inch platinum copper cool hybrid mattress and two of their adjustable cooling pillows. After the first night, I woke up the following morning and I felt like a new man. I had no shoulder and back pain, and I felt better than I'd felt in years. So if you're having trouble sleeping or you're waking up feeling groggy and tired in the mornings, or if you can't remember the last time you've changed out your mattress, head over to VitalisSleep.com right now. They're offering all of my listeners a 20% discount on anything you purchase off the website. 
Just enter the promo code ODYSSEY20 at checkout and you'll get 20% off of your entire order. The link is in the show notes, so head over there now and start sleeping better tonight. So I, I built the website and I built the app itself. It's a web app and developed the survey and everything that contributes where you can submit your sightings to that database. And from there, after that was going for a while, I was working on the app behind the scenes, the mobile app that you can get on your phone. And uh, I just slowly but surely put it all together and released. The hardest thing was releasing the app on the individual app stores. It's actually way harder than I expected. Apple's very secure. So you have to go through a process with screenshots and security and who you're targeting with the app and are there ads, all these things you have to really document with Apple. And Google's similar, but a little, there's a, a few less requirements with Google. I would say it's still secure, but Apple really takes it to the next level. Um, so those were some of the difficulties and the challenges I had. Wasn't really the mapping side of it. It was getting, at, getting it out to everyone uh, in a way that we could really interface with the public and start to gather information easily and make it, put it in the palms of people's hands. Uh, that was the goal. So really taking technology, making it mobile. And that way, when people have that sighting, they can go to the website or download the app and put it right into the database. When you hit submit, it goes into the database right away. So without getting too technical, that was a, kind of how I built the Bigfoot Mapping Project. Esri is a software I use. Esri, Environmental Science Research Institute, could not do it without that software. ArcGIS Online is a big core part of what what comp comprises uh, of the Bigfoot Mapping Project. It's, it's ArcGIS Online mainly, if anybody's interested in doing something similar. Well, there's always questions that come up when, when I first heard about the, and I downloaded the app, I, I got the app on Apple and it works great. I was excited to, as soon as Alex told me about it, we got out of a, the interview, I was downloading the Bigfoot map and I'm looking to see what's going on in North Carolina, <laughs> in my area. But there's a lot of people I'm sure that are probably going to hear this and say, okay, couple of things, right? First and foremost, how do you vet these stories? That's one of the things uh -huh. I get on the podcast all the time. How do you vet these people who are coming on and sharing their experiences? Well, my answer, if you've listened to the show, you know, is I don't. I do it as best I can. You know, I don't mm -hmm. I try not to have anybody on that I think is mentally ill or has not truly believed that they've had the experience that they share on the show. But outside of that, I can't go back to in the time machine to 78, whenever this encounter happened and check out the area and do all that stuff. So I guess that'd be first question for you. It goes into the database, but is there, and if there is a vetting process, what does that look like? And secondly, I'm sure there are people out there that are going to listen to this and say, okay, what's the difference in this and going to the BFR website, which is the, supposedly the biggest database of Bigfoot sightings that have been documented in the world. So let's talk a little bit about vetting and talk a little bit about the difference and what they expect from some of these other archival places that archive these types of sightings. Absolutely. Uh, vetting, it's very difficult, as you just highlighted. Really, I can't get inside somebody's head uh, and when they're submitting something to the survey. Uh, but I do have a disclaimer on the submission that in order to deter anybody from putting anything inappropriate or anything along those lines that shouldn't be submitted, I do have a disclaimer that you have to agree to before you submit. And if there is anything that crosses the line like that, it does get reported. It will be reported to law enforcement or any and anything 
that it needs to be reported to and i'll handle i personally handle that properly i i read every single sighting that gets submitted so if there's something that's clearly a troll or kind of identifiably not a reliable report there's characters that you can tell when you read something you just you're like this is this is you know not good information and it'll get deleted now i try to approach it with an open mind as well because not everyone since this is a written submission not everyone communicates as well as along the same spectrum as everyone else so when i read the reports i try really not to fill in blanks and really insert my own agenda into the reports i try to be as unbiased as possible and i tend to if i can tell somebody is trying to convey the information well and it there's some elements of of a good information in there i'll keep the report and uh, i wouldn't say i'm generous with that uh, I'm, but i do recognize that this is coming from the general population all ages all education levels and i don't want to be a gatekeeper i think i mentioned that earlier before in the green room before we started the show i think it's very important that people feel as if there is no judgment uh, associated with submitting their citing this holds people back and i want them to feel free to really tell the truth of what they saw and uh, provide an environment that allows for that so i do my best i'm sure there's stuff that just like in the bfro i think they've been spoofed before too so you know you can only learn from that and if i do learn more information like for example i just had a, a trail cam submission i actually sent it to alex because it was sketchy that uh, you could see clear toenails in the sighting and in the picture rather and it just was too convenient too crystal clear and I sent it to him and instantly he was like, oh, it's this suit, you know, and I was like, I didn't think to look for that. So that got deleted. Right. Things like that. I really try to keep an eye out for. So that that's about as far as I can vet this type of survey because it is crowdsourcing. Right. So the, the objective is to really cast a wide net in hopes of getting a big data set. And with that, I think some of the principles of big data lend themselves to through analysis, eliminating bad information anyway. The consistent reports and the consistent trends and threads are going to, regardless of how they're worded and who submitted them and when, they are going to shine through. They're going through through consistent analysis. The rest of the, even if it's good information and it's just not frequent, that's also going to fall out. So we're really trying to get down to the meat of it um, through this approach. We may miss fine details, and that's just one aspect of of the nature of this type of analysis but that's not what a big data at least what i'm doing with the bigfoot mapping project that's not the approach i'm taking i'm really trying to identify the biggest higher ranking trends so that we can really start to build from there so vetting slash data quality and standardization and how do, how do i anticipate that even if some false reports or not good information makes it through my vetting and filter of interpreting the reports as I read them, I still trust that the analysis will provide good data because I really don't believe that somebody's going to sit and go through the manual process of submitting a thousand sightings to to skew the data set. And that's going to be very obvious. I capture uh, the email addresses, I capture, I can even dig to get the IP they were submitted from. 
those types of things that I can really understand the IP address, actually, I, sh- I should specify. So I know there's an IP range I can look for and understand, all right, this, this series of 10 sightings might have had, if they went through the effort, 10 different emails, but it's all from the same IP address, right? So I can really, you've got to be pretty technical to be able to spoof uh, with all the information I capture behind the scenes. So I'm doing my best, but that's not to say that it's foolproof. It's not 100%. Nothing is. Yeah, I agree. It's the same thing for the BFR. Like you said, you podcast like this one, but I think that's the very important takeaway from that portion of the conversation is that unless you're doing a couple of thousand reports, maybe yearly, you're not really going to skew the data. And I certainly want to get into some of the data trends that you're seeing, some of the commonalities, because there are things that stick out over the course of you know 300 plus episodes I've done here and some of the other shows I've interviewed folks on there seems to be some commonalities and there are anomalies that stick out as well. That's one of the things I talked to Cliff Brackman about recently is some of the reports that Cliff has taken. And it seems like for some reason, and maybe I'm just skewed because they sort of stick out in my mind, but I would say probably 25% or so of the conversations I have with people when they have a sighting of Bigfoot or encounter with Sasquatch, whatever, there's something else. There's another sort of woo part of it. It's an orb thing or a UFO involvement or something that somebody would call more paranormal or woo. Is that something that you're seeing in some of these reports? Do you guys filter those out or do they make it in? And they, if it's a part of the conversation, if it's a part of the encounter, it stays. Are you seeing enough of those? I think Cliff told me roughly about maybe less than one, two percent of what he's encountered is about that. I can concur with that percentage rate. I have about 500 sightings that were submitted crowdsourced in the last two years. And of those, really only a handful are uh, have mentioned orbs, for example, or a bit of the woo factor. And there are some that don't really have pertinent information. They're just exclaiming that Bigfoot is a paranormal entity. So things like that that come in and don't have necessarily any report or citing information attached to them do get filtered out because that is not anything I can analyze, right? But that being said, uh, there was just a recent report. Uh, I can't remember where it was. I've just read like 60 reports that got submitted since I uh, did the show with Alex. So very grateful for it. I just can't recall exact details. But one of the recent reports mentioned orbs and weird lights, but also had succinct information regarding seeing, hearing, an experience they had uh, that they regarded as Bigfoot, right? So those types of sightings do stay because who am I to say that, who am I to make that call? I don't, ball lightning is something that is explained. It's, I would never believe it, but it exists, right? So just as an example of a weird orb that you might see and uh, things that are unexplained, but are possible, I really can't, I can't filter them out because I'm just not an authority on that. And it could be information that is valuable. It might not be. I don't know, but I'm, I'm not one to make a judgment call on that. I don't have enough data. And that's the whole basis of the project is, is really in being informed by the data. So I can't, I try really not to artificially insert my assumptions by deleting things that I just don't understand or don't necessarily believe myself. Um, if, it's, if it could be real and it's obviously not just somebody having fun, it stays. It stays. 
Well, you kind of answered the other part of that question. I think you said over the last couple of years of, of doing this, you got about 500 or so reports. Let's talk a little bit about the trends, some of the commonalities, the common threads, and some of the data that you're seeing. You've obviously had time to, to take a look and dig into some of that stuff. Talk about some of the data. What are you seeing as far as commonalities are concerned throughout the reports that you've gathered so far? Sure. One of the things that I've seen and kind of interpreted through reading all these reports over the last few years is a lot of people get close to Bigfoot or creatures like Bigfoot, but there's never been an attack per se that at least has been reported in my database. They're very curious creatures. They're, they're vocally, they'll warn you, but they never really outright have hurt anyone that I'm aware of. And I think that speaks to their intelligence. I think they're curious. They know how to stay on the periphery. They know how to uh, investigate, for lack of a better term. And I, I think it comes through that they understand that we're humans and that we're different from other wildlife. And they are just as curious about us and why we're there in their home and what we're doing. Uh, and they just want to protect either their family, their territory, et cetera. And they take actions to warn us. Um, a lot of warning behavior is what I'm noticing. Vocalizations, wood knocks, tree shakes, those types of things. I can, if you'd like to touch on these, I'll keep going. I mean, just interrupt me, please. Another behavioral thing that I've really focused on lately is how Bigfoot travels throughout the United States, really. I've really focused, I've done a map per state of least cost pathways through the environment that analyzes the connectors between wildlife and conservation hubs, right? So I found a data set that's an authoritative data set. It's a biological, scientifically accepted, validated data set uh, for green infrastructure. But being in a, an alternative field, you kind of have to find and use uh, off-label uses for some data sets, if you will. And one of these off-label uses I'm using the green infrastructure data set for is the really well-documented and defined least-cost pathways, which are basically the connectors between like a state park and a state forest, for example, some places with really high conservation value that would support really uh, voluminous, a, a big amount of wildlife can survive there and be sustained in these areas. And they're called hubs. And in between these hubs or islands are paths that are more traveled or less traveled. And because of how well they connect without a lot of human resistance or different types of impediments along the way, in between, you start to get these corridors. Stay tuned for more Sasquatch Odyssey. We'll be right back after these messages. And you can see these network of corridors, which are basically highways between the hubs. So what I've done is intersected all of the sightings through the historical database, which I haven't mentioned yet. Um, you mentioned the BFRO. I'll take an, a little aside there. BFRO um, and many other research organizations I have represented on the map as a historical database. There's a website, Manjani's Bigfoot Sighting Database, that kind of stopped collecting data in 2016. So I really hopefully picked up the torch there. But I did incorporate that into the Bigfoot, uh, the Bigfoot mapping project as a base map, right, to build on. And then anything that's submitted is symbolized differently in the map. So I take all of those sightings, historical and crowdsourced, that were submitted after I started the Bigfoot mapping project. 
and intersect them to those corridors. And you would be amazed at the correspondence. I, I know correlation isn't causation, vice versa, but it's just uncanny. The the way that these sightings naturally intersect with proven wildlife corridors. And you can look at every map uh, that I've published for almost every state, and it just comes through that you can see that these creatures, whatever they are, are using these wildlife highways. And I think that's one of the biggest validators in terms of a data set is being able to take like the green infrastructure data set that is it's done for a completely different purpose, but it has val- valuable and valid information in it about wildlife and then intersect your data as kind of a litmus test, right? Are these, where are these sightings occurring? Oh man, they're occurring all along these highways that all the other wildlife uses. It's a perfect litmus test for me. And it just, I think, starts to go down an avenue for lack of a bet, for punny, you know, these highways. We're going down an avenue with them where we can start to predict areas of high concentrated sightings in one in one cluster here in the you know a different part of the state there's another cluster here well let's look in between and fill in the void of how are they getting there are they traveling between these clusters if they are what routes are they taking where can we start to predict this behavior and this travel uh with some intelligence right so that's one of the big things I've been focused on lately. So forgive me if I talk about it a lot, but I'm really focused on the ability to start inferring information and predicting behavior based on the data set. We're finally getting to a point where we have enough points on the map to start to really, really hopefully build some confidence in the, uh, the trends that we're pulling out. And one of them, the biggest one I think so far that I've identified is the way that these sightings intersect with travel corridors for wildlife. Let's talk a little bit about that because in order, I say it all the time, in order for there to be a sighting, there has to be a person in that area. So are you finding that these things are happening on the periphery of cities or things like that? Is it deep in the woods? Are we talking national parks where people are hiking? Where are you seeing or are you seeing that in the data enough to talk about where the sightings are actually occurring? So you're right. I, I think it's it's. I'd be remiss if I didn't agree with you on the fact that you have to have a person to have a sighting. It kind of goes hand in hand. But um, I can say that these sightings are happening in places where um, you wouldn't expect them. They are on the periphery, but the, the, it's not coincidental that they are in greenways, for example, right? They're just outside a city and it's a narrow bottleneck in between two urban areas. And that's where the the wildlife are going to funnel any wildlife, really. That's just a pretty much a rule. If there's a bottleneck somewhere, you deer, anything you want to identify is going to travel through a bottleneck. And uh, these these sightings seem to um, occur in that same regard, in that same pattern. So, yes, uh, it's hard to say that if without people, is it a population effect? Basically, if I understand your question correctly, and I think there is an element of that. I I can't deny that. But again, referring back to big data, hopefully we can start to mitigate that with more data and and those misidentifications, which certainly do make it through, you know, seeing a bear thinking of something else does happen. But on that same token, I will say there's plenty of sightings in in the map. I actually made a map that compared bear range to all the sightings. And there are plenty of sightings that happen outside of 
normal bear range, both black bears and brown bears. So there is an element there that people aren't necessarily familiar with wildlife and they jump to conclusions, especially when they see something and they're frightened. Adrenaline's running, your, your memory's distorted, and you being in law enforcement, former law enforcement, you certainly probably understand how that can happen with eyewitness reports. So uh, I think there's definitely an element of that, but that's what we're trying to buffer with uh, backing it up with this, these data sets that we can find, you know, land use, wildlife ranges, conservation pathways, all these types of things to start to pull out the high value reports and let the rest kind of go by, not go by the wayside, but fall out of the data set for lack of a better term. You used the C word. You said conservation because that's something that's come up recently on the show and I've talked to people about. There's a lot of groups out there that are pro-kill. They're trying to take one of these things down and people get a little upset about that. There's always two camps, right? Somebody's pro-kill. We got to bring one in for science. We got to have a type specimen. They've got to be recognized before we can do anything else. And then that conservation word has come up a lot. And, you know, I've had conversations with people recently who say, you know, I think they're probably doing okay without us. I'm not so sure that they need us involved in their conservation. So I guess that's a, a couple of part question. I'll start with this. I know there are people who are, they're, they're out there against killing one of these things that have a problem often with these fresh sightings and people using the data that may come into you that gets published. They may be looking at the Bigfoot mapping project going, oh, there's one. Come on, Joe Bob, let's hop in the truck and go take this thing down. Have you had that at all? Have people brought that up to you? Is that, was yes. that a concern for yes. you? And what about the conservation thing? Do you think this Bigfoot mapping project, if we ever got to the point where these things were recognized by science, that this could then be these trends and these data sets that you're finding could be used to maybe figure out where they're at and help in conservation efforts if we got to that point? So the first part uh, of your question about hunting and uh, having a, a cadaver, if you will, for examination, I can certainly share my personal opinion being a hunter. I am actually not, you might be surprised, I'm not in favor of killing a Bigfoot based on the fact that I just don't know how intelligent they are. I don't know how sentient and critical with their intelligence is. Their intelligence is. Do they approach human intelligence? Is it the equivalent of murdering someone? I, I couldn't reconcile that with myself if I did shoot something unknown like that and then later found that out i would hate to make that mistake and it would be a mistake there are plenty of other valid ways to study animals without killing one you can tranquilize you can photograph you can trap all different things now whether or not you're going to trap a bigfoot i don't know but it'd have to be a pretty advanced trap but uh even with that i would be more at peace with myself if knowing they were out there without killing one. I I can live with just knowing and having that experience for myself. I don't need the headlines. I don't think we should seek that. I think, and this is my personal philosophy. I think if they made it this far, like you said, they're perfectly fine without us. It would be great if we had definitive proof, but if, if that's not something we get through killing one, I'm okay with that. We don't need to, I don't think we need to kill one. I wouldn't advocate for that personally. Now, the second part of your uh, your question, can you remind me? Sorry, I got off on a tangent there. It was a very long-winded way to ask a question. 
It was more about if we get to the point where, whether it's with somebody bringing one of these things in strapped to the hood of a pickup, or we figure out other ways to document the species, and we find out that we are encroaching and doing some things that are endangering these things, and the conservation effort. Do you think that some of these data sets that you're finding, I think I know the answer to this, but some of the data sets and some of the trends that you found would aid in that if we ever got to the point where we needed to enact some sort of conservation effort? Yes, uh, I think that's hopefully going to be a benefit of the Bigfoot Mapping Project, that where we can identify valuable areas that would be uh, a positive contribution if we were to conserve them in hopes of prov- keeping a, a, a habitat for Bigfoot available. Now, I do think it's going to be quite difficult based on some of the, pa- referring back to the patterns you asked me about, based on the map and the infrequency of sightings in certain areas and how far apart they are, I think it is obvious that this creature is very far ranging and very solitary. So if you do identify an area, how how do you even know if it's going to be occupied by a Bigfoot, right? It, you can set them aside, but at some point, there's also a balance. You can't just set aside everywhere that's not built on that the, that's within a 10-mile radius of a Bigfoot sighting. So you'd have to figure out some way to balance that and uh, really not in, impinge upon everyone else's freedom to live their life, build their homes, build new infrastructure, things like that. I, I think it's important to recognize we have to balance progress and conservation. Um, oftentimes we get, it's easy to say conservation is the most important thing, but there's the element of, of progress as well, human progress, um, and in, in doing that responsibly and keeping a balance there. So I would love to say, Sure. Everywhere there's a sighting, let's just buffer that and call that a conservation area. But I don't think that's realistic. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. And, you know, I've, I've always been on the fence and I've always said that, you know, I don't want to see anything killed outside of, you know, hunting for your sustenance and those kind of things. I'm perfectly fine with that. But I do believe in the scientific method. And I do think that eventually one of these things is probably going to have to be brought in one way or the other, where it dies naturally or somebody takes one out. You know, I was talking to Matt Pruitt earlier, you know, we're talking about Matt before we started the show and Mm -hmm. the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, that's their mission. They're out there in Area X and they've expanded, you know, into other areas to do more research. And they've taken shots at these things out there in Area X to try to bring one down. And I've heard Daryl Collier tell his story about he injured something. And that's stuck with him throughout, you know, the, the years. Anything as a hunter, I've injured things that have deer in, in particular, right? And that just gnaws at your soul. Um, I can say that from experience. Just not recovering something that you've injured is just the worst feeling. And then to think, like I was saying earlier, if it's a Bigfoot that knows can beyond a, a, a typical wild animal intelligence, man, I can't imagine how that impacted him. I can, I cannot. Yeah, I'm working to get Daryl on the show and we can talk about that because I, I can only imagine I've, I've seen documentaries where he's recalled that story and you see that he's definitely torn up by it. But the other part of that, it is the the North American Wood Ape Conservancy Project, right? So mm-hmm. they're working towards conservation. And I, I think it's a lot more difficult than a lot of people think about. You know, there's Certain er- you, I think you mentioned it earlier. There are certain cities and and municipalities across the country, although very few. And sometimes I think it may even be a joke that is no hunting Bigfoot and yeah. done these little efforts of you know possibly conserving these things and saying it's illegal to go shoot one. And people laugh and and joke, but 
you know, if they're out there, it may not be necessarily a big joke if and when we get to that point of, okay, now we've recognized them. Somebody brought, you know, Joe, Bob and Billy brought one in on the truck. There it is. We got to figure out what to do next. And I, I'm one of those people, honestly, I think sometimes the best thing to do is absolutely nothing at all. Because if they've gone this long and we've only had limited interactions with them, it's probably best to just leave them alone. And to your point, I want to talk a little bit about some of the data around national parks and other things. But you mentioned earlier that you'd never had a documented case. I've only talked to one person who's been on the show who had an experience where a Bigfoot threw a log and hit him in the chest and knocked him down. Oh, man. And it was Jeff from Pine Island Research. And Jeff came on, it was probably almost two years ago now and told his story. But it was the first and only time I'd ever heard that. He walked up to take a pee on an island, and this thing walked across the path and chunked a log that it already had in his hand and knocked him off his feet when he was a kid. And he took off running, and, and the rest was history. There's but a first in, for everything, I guess. I, I never heard anything like that. There you go. I have to, I'll have to, once we get out of here, I'll, I'll tell you the episode number so you can kind of hear Jeff's yeah, story. I'll go listen. But I said that to say there's a lot of people, I won't say a lot of people, there are some people in the community and beyond. I'm trying to figure out how to word this so I don't get sued. <laughs> there's, uh, there's people. You always who, know you've waded into good territory when you're thinking like that, right? <laughs> right. There, there's people who attribute possibly attribute some of these missing persons cases to it's always around the fringe of maybe it was a Bigfoot that took these people. Have you done anything as far as the the mapping project to correlate the data and take a look at if there's any trends around missing persons reports and Bigfoot being seen in the area around the general time. Have you done any of that stuff? Stay tuned for more Sasquatch Odyssey. We'll be right back after these messages. Yes, I did a very cursory map and I should dedicate, this has come up a few times. I should dedicate there. I think it's influenced by one of those very popular viral maps that shows the missing people labels and the, and the, the cave sites in America. There's a, I'm sure you've seen that map, but I should dedicate more time to it so I can uh, answer with more, more of an informed opinion. I did do a cursory map. It is posted on my Instagram and there I did correlate Bigfoot sightings to missing persons locations. So last known locations, right? And it's hard to derive a real opinion from just that one analysis. It was a very high level analysis. I didn't limit it by dates and times. It was just a cumulative aggregate of here's all the sightings. Here's all the last known locations I could gather. And it's, it's to really, really understand that just at, at that level would be quite a stretch. I'd have to really tie down to a temporal analysis of okay this person went missing here within a few weeks maybe would be an acceptable range was there a bigfoot sighted within x number of miles and that would be a much more informed analysis i think but at a glance it's i can see why people make that correlation i can certainly see it by looking at that map it's stru- it's oddly similar the patterns are there but would I extrapolate and, and say that I think they're related without looking into it more? 
I really couldn't do that responsibly. I think that would be a bit sensational <laughs> on my on my part, right? I don't want to make those claims because I truly don't know. Uh, I haven't looked at it like that. Yeah, my cop brain says to me when I look at something like that, and I, I have, I'll admit I haven't looked at your Instagram and looked at that particular map that you're talking about, but when people mention that to me, I say, you know, people go missing in the woods all the time. And I've, I've, very I've, easy. I've said on the show before, you know, if Bigfoot exists, if they're out there, if you believe any of this at all, it's a possibility that they certainly are maybe responsible for taking some people. You know, if, they, if they're apex predators and there's an injured person or a mentally ill person or somebody who's had a stroke in the woods or something like that, they're, going, they're, they're like a bear or any other carnivore or omnivore. They're going to take that opportunity to take right. that weak person down, culling the herd, so to speak. But I think it's really, in my opinion, irresponsible of people who sensationalize that to the point of pointing and saying, this is probably what it is. Because I've been to conferences and I've seen people sort of drinking that Kool-Aid and buying into that kind of thing. And it's very sensational. It's cool to talk about. But at the same time, I think you have to be responsible and say, if there's not data to support that, if it's just your feeling about whatever's going on, I think you need to back off of that a little bit until you get you got some data. But I'm glad that you were able to at least extrapolate something out of you know your cursory map that you mentioned. Again, going back to the patterns, I think you can find a lot of patterns and a lot of things that are completely and totally separate from one another. They have nothing to do with one another. It just may be geographically. Bigfoot seen 10 times in this really remote area, and there's a lot of cliffs, and 10 people fall off of cliffs and break their legs. Right. Did Bigfoot push them, or is it just the terrain? Exactly. So Exactly. I think uh, before I forget, I, if we can go back a little bit to talk about conservation and the North American Wood Ape Conservancy and their approach for taking shots, for example, at a creature and uh, trying to get a, a specimen, I would like to make a point about the positive impact that hunting, I guess what you, yeah, I'd call what they're doing, hunting for Bigfoot, for lack of a better term. And I, I'm not, please don't get mad at me if, I, if you, <laughs> that's the best I can, description I can come up with, but I do have a positive opinion of that because if you look at conservation in Africa, for example, that's influenced by the hunting industry, there are populations of animals that are safari and the big five, for example. These, popu these animals in Africa were on the brink of being endangered or extinct. And by the hunting industry, it's not a popular opinion, but it is the numbers don't lie that by introducing commercial hunting in these areas, it's it's kept poachers out and it's it's brought up their their numbers exponentially over a short time so i do think there are i think hunting and conservation very much go hand in hand and i'd be remiss if i didn't mention that i i'm glad i had the chance to remember to say it while it was relevant enough in the conversation because i think there is a big part of uh, about positive influence on balancing that conservation hunting and i guess wildlife protection aspect as well um if i didn't mention that i'd be upset when i listen to this later so <laughs> i don't want to put you on the spot and I, I know it's tough when you have so many reports that you read but is there any that have stuck out to you that have been really prolific or really interesting to you that you've collected over the last couple of years oh i am ready for you i'm going straight to the notebook uh that's what i was doing before the call i was writing notes down because i I wanted to remember these. 
And then I looked up and it was time for our call. I almost I was almost a little late, but uh, there are a few and they've been submitted and they've happened at different times. One of the more recent ones was in, forgive me, I'm going to say this wrong, Medoc Mountain State Park, submitted by Stephen Barcelo. And I can't remember where Medoc Mountain State Park was. It's in North Carolina. North Is it? Yep. In North Carolina. It, was, it happened on November 7th of 2022. And he submitted, I'll send you the picture later if you like, he submitted a FLIR image. And it is really, uh, really interesting. It's, it's definitely bipedal. It de- kind of matches the description of the Bigfoot that, uh, creature that I saw in Texas. And it's, it's a very good image. Now, beyond that, I don't know much about the origin of the image, but Mr. Barcello was actually part of a Bigfoot research organization there in North Carolina. So I do doubt that his intentions were to uh, be a hoaxer, but uh, I will add that asterisk on that, that I have not analyzed that photo any further. So I don't want to make claims that it's authentic, but it did pique my interest for sure. And that's a very recent one. Uh, again, from November of 2022, that was a, a really one of the most compelling photos I've seen to be further analyzed. Then I've got another one that is um, in Wendigo Lake near Deschutes National Forest in Oregon that occurred in October of 2020. And it's interesting that's by Wendigo Lake, knowing the background of a Wendigo, right? I thought that was just interesting geographical coincidence, but there's footprints and they're by a lake, lakeside footprints, and they're very defined. Um, clearly match Dr. Meldrum's description of what a Bigfoot anatomy, anatomically correct foot, foot, footprint would look like. So um, all these photos I can share with you, by the way, as well, if you'd like to have them for your, your post. Um, and they are available, obviously, when you click on the sighting in the map. The, there's another one along the Appalachian Trail in Pennsylvania from 2017 footprints in the snow. Uh, I really like the footprint sightings because it's tangible. Uh, footprint reports are very tangible. I think that's some of the best evidence there that there there can be uh, that something was there. It goes back all the way through our evolution as tracking. So I think it's uh, just t- a great piece of evidence, and I tend to focus on those. They're kind of my favorite finding the footprints because I just I can envision something there, and it's it's like a a beacon that, that I, you can follow, know which direction they were going, about how heavy they were, how big they were, those types of things. It's, you know, footprint can tell you a lot. Another one, uh, I just have a couple more that, that kind of jumped out to me. Uh, in Model, Colorado, a 25-year experienced hunting guide submitted one, and it is another footprint. And this one is very interesting. It has some rock art with it. I'd never... And the way that the rocks are arranged, you can see he took a photo of it. There's an indention, like a, I can't, I can't, like a sliver of a rock fell out, and there's just a half inch lip of this indention where it's a sheer face, and you can see just this indention in the lip there. And there's actually rocks piled on top of each other, small round rocks in, in this indention. What what that is, I don't know, but it was right by the footprint that he submitted. And I tend to not really question that he didn't know what it was since he's a 25 year experienced hunting guide. He's probably knows much more than I do about the wildlife out there. And then there's one from July 4th in Pennsylvania in Egypt Valley wildlife area, another set of footprints. 
And then my first and favorite set of footprints are in northern Idaho in the snow. An elk, an elk hunter had uh, found a set of footprints, and that was one of my very first submissions. Uh, and that occurred in November of, ooh, I can't even read, read my own handwriting. In middle of November, it looks like I wrote down 2020 but or 2021. I was in a rush to finish when I looked up at the clock. <laughs> so uh, forgive me for that, but they're all in the map. And I will, when you release this episode, I'll, uh, I'll send you the photos. And if you don't mind, I'll put out a companion Instagram post that references some of the photos I talk about since I have the notes. Um, I'll certainly share that with you. But there are, and that's just a handful out of the 500 sightings that have been submitted and reports. So I actually love going through the map. I always find something that has a detail that didn't register with me before. I'm constantly reading the database thinking about new ways to analyze the data. And recently, I think I've been on a tracking mindset given the least cost, least cost paths that I'm looking at, the footprints and those types of things. I just, I'm trying to get to as tangible data as possible. And footprints are, I think, some of the, I, I don't want to say easier things to find, but it's something that Bigfoot leaves behind. So at least it's more likely to be found. I think it's so interesting that you started off with the Medoc State Park because the very first episode of Sasquatch Odyssey ever was a roadside crossing that I documented with the witness, Kale, who was in the Medoc Mountain State Park area. And he saw one of those things walk across the road in front of him while he was driving to work one day. And he was going out and literally he was a flute player. He was playing the flute in the woods and having interactions with Sasquatch, allegedly in the Medoc Mountain State Park. So that's a that's a couple of hours away from me here in North Carolina. So, and once you That's send an over interesting the, coincidence, yeah, yeah. Once you send the photos over and we release this episode, everybody can go over to paranormalworldproductions.com, check out the Sasquatch Odyssey blog, and we'll have a link to everything that we talk about, and you can see the photos there. And I'll link to the Instagram for the Bigfoot Mapping Project and all that stuff. I want to ask you one more thing, Scott. Are you seeing people talk about hot spots, right? It's all about mm-hmm. the hot spots. I know where these hot spots are. It happened to me when I was at this conference over the weekend. People were coming up and saying, you know, I know a bunch of hot spots around the Uari National Forest. Let's talk a little bit about the data that you've seen in the mapping project. Are you seeing what you would consider hot spots? Are there states that have stuck out as far as more sightings in the Pacific Northwest versus the Southeast? What are you seeing as far as a trend there? There's actually, I've seen a lot. I did a, an analysis at the state level of hotspots in each state, and I found some I- interesting insights there. Uh, obviously, the Pacific Northwest stands out um, as having the most concentrated sightings of Bigfoot in, um, in that area there. However, I, I think one of the interest, most interesting places that I, I found that, was, that had more occurrences of hotspots than I expected would be Kentucky. I never thought of Kentucky as a Bigfoot hotspot in my life. I mean, in the, in the last few years, everything, it's Pacific Northwest, it's, it's Ohio, it's, um, but Kentucky, I guess it's close to Ohio, but Kentucky really stuck out to me as having an interesting amount of sightings. And then to your question, though, hotspots, I think, are very subjective. I mean, what one person's interpretation of a hotspot is, there could be sightings that are 100 miles apart, right? And that could mean to them that there's two sightings within 100 miles. That could be a hotspot, right? So it all depends on how you define that. And typically, in my analysis, when I define a hotspot, 
I try to base it on at least my knowledge of other wildlife behavior. And since these creatures are far ranging, I, I tend to lean not to like a deer's range, which is like a square mile from where they're born or, or like anything like that. I try to go between three to 10 miles somewhere in that, in that range to consider it a hot spot. That's not, that doesn't mean I'm considering it their range, but when they enter that area of, you know, that concentrated three mile area, for example, I've done different analysis and, and I classify them differently, but a, a three mile concentration of sightings or even a one mile concentration of sightings would be white hot on the map. And then three miles might be red hot and then so on concentrically out. And I think we really need to define what a hot spot is before, you know, I can, that's my definition. So if I say, yeah, I've noticed hot spots using that definition uh, and those distances. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are uh, way more than I thought, specifically in the Pacific Northwest, but there's, uh, there's identifiable ones in just about every state or place that has Bigfoot sightings, some more than others. Right. Um, and I'd love to sit here and go through a map with you. We could spend another few hours if you like, but a uh, short answer to that is yes, I have, and I, I have found and identified hot spots. Absolutely. Well, we've talked a ton about it. So let's talk about the map itself. Where can people find it? We've talked about the app. We've talked about the website. Talk a little bit about the map, how it's laid out, what people can expect when they see it, how do they get it, and what can they expect when they get there? Sure. So if you'd like to explore the map, you can find it at www.bigfootmap.com. And that's all one word, Bigfoot Map. And when you get there, you'll just have to click my logo to enter the map and that's behind the door, if you will. But there's no login or anything required. It's all public. And once you get there, you're going to see all different points of different colors on the map. So I highly suggest opening the legend. That's the second most important thing besides the data, the data on a map is the legend. And that legend will be your guide to interpret all of the symbols on the map, including the types of sightings. Uh, we have audible sightings, we have footprint sightings, we have visual sightings. Then we have different colors for sightings that happened recently. Uh, they, they tend to think an orange sighting happened, happened in the last 48 hours. A green one was within the last seven days. And the, a blue neon big sighting is within the last 10 days it was submitted. So there are different ways to look at a map, all at surface level. And then as you zoom in, the symbols will change, but your legend will update. So it's very uh, surface level and everything you see is will appear in the legend it, it's not meant to be complicated it's hopefully simple to understand and um, when you get there you can click on anything in the map uh, any layer that's turned on to get a pop-up and read for example if you want to read about one of the sightings click on the symbol and a pop-up will open up and it will either give you a summary right in the pop-up or it will give you a link to open up like a bfro report for example and it'll link right to their page and that was important I'd like to mention that that I didn't scrape everything from everyone. I just provide a conduit to everyone's to their sites. So um, I wanted to make sure everyone got recognized for the effort they put in providing a good database, specifically BRO, BFRO. I'd be I'd be remiss. I'd be crazy not to mention how how big they were of an influence on getting this project going. But I want to make sure that I direct traffic through the map to their site, so you get it straight from the source. Um, and whether it's updated, all those types of things, you get it directly from them. It's very important uh, that everyone gets their credit due. And 
there's a, a very, very important, if the, probably the, aside from the data, the most important thing in the map is submitting a report. You can submit a report from the map itself. There's a button in the map or on the, on the homepage uh, at bigfootmap.com where if you or anybody you know has had a sighting, please encourage them to submit a report. The, the more data we get, the more we're going to learn, and hopefully we can, we can provide some new and informative insights by you know, uh, co- collecting and keeping this data organized in a standardized data set. I think uh, the only other place I would recommend that anybody that wants to learn more about the Bigfoot Mapping Project visit would be uh, my Instagram. It's Bigfoot Mapping Project at Bigfoot Mapping Project on Instagram. And there I, I post a lot of analysis and maps that maybe not everyone has either the experience or access to some of this data to analyze. And I analyze it in a way in the map that is hopefully easy to interpret. And I try to bring some information in the description to whoever's reading it that, that might help them understand what's going on in the map, what I'm looking at, what I'm looking for, what opinion I've pulled away from the map, or if I'm looking at a hotspot, for example, where the hotspot is that I would go, or whatever I'm looking at in the map, I, I certainly try to explain. I definitely don't tell people what to think. I'd rather provoke uh, conversation and and uh, inspire people to get out and and do their own research, but I certainly provide new angles on some of the data that maybe other people don't necessarily look at or compare to through my experience and through my knowledge of GIS, get to look at different data sets that not a lot of people probably even know exist, truthfully. So that would be the Bigfoot Mapping Project experience in a nutshell would be bigfootmap.com and the Instagram at Bigfoot Mapping Project. Well, I'll have links to all of that stuff in the show notes. You guys go over and check it out. I have it on my phone. It's a great app. It's easy to use. It's easy to understand. And if you're into this kind of thing at all and you want to read and see where things are happening, go get it now. Check out the website. Check it out. All the links are right there in the show notes. Scott, I've had a blast talking to you, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I I appreciate that you didn't let all the true things that Alex said about me deter you from inviting me. So. Uh, I really appreciate being here. I had a lot of fun and uh, I can't wait to hear more of your episodes and, and uh, I look forward to hopefully being a guest again in the future to give you a quick update.